Welcome everyone to that special moment podcast where the process of life-changing decisions are explained and destiny is forged. I am Armand and today I have the pleasure to have on the show Alicia Schilberg, a multifaceted woman influencer. She is a self-made multi-industry serial entrepreneur and UN global champion for entrepreneurship. Without further ado, let's meet her. Alicia, welcome to the show. Hi, Omar. Thank you for hosting me. Very excited to be here with you. The pleasure is mine. Let me start and uh, ask you this first question that I ask all my guests. I have introduced you to the show and I would like to know in your own words, who is Alicia Silberg? I think for starters, I'm a polymath. And um, I've done a lot of very interesting things in my life. Um, so I know mm -hmm. the traditional stuff that people see on my bio and CV that, you know, I'm a statistician and data scientist and I'm an investor and I bought companies and I'm a UN uh, global champion for women and entrepreneurs. And, um, you know, I've hosted a radio show very successfully globally for three years. And um, today I live in Silicon Valley and you can call me a venture capitalist. And I've been very lucky in the sense that um, I've had an extraordinary journey. But at the same time, I mm -hmm. think I'm someone that loves art and culture and shows like the one you're hosting and mindfulness and self-improvement, which is why I was drawn to your show in the first place and asking those interesting questions that make life more exciting. Interesting. Um, you're from South Africa, and I would like you to... Um to talk me through your personal development journey, specifically how you thought that entrepreneurship was made for you or you were made for entrepreneurship? Well, I grew up in South Africa and contrary to what most people believe about my life, it was actually extremely difficult. So I became an entrepreneur at five years old um, because I wanted a pair of pink roller skates and I couldn't afford them. I went to a very exclusive international school. And so I had to figure out how to get those roller skates um, mm -hmm. and be cool like my friends. And so <laughs> I figured out very quickly that if I sold um, clothes and stuff from everyone I knew's wardrobes, I'd be able to raise the money to buy those roller skates. I did raise the money in a couple of hours. I bought the roller skates to this day. I've never worn those roller skates. I've looked after them. They're still sitting in South Africa to this day. Um, as a result, on a side note, I think I developed a love of shoes as a result of those roller skates because I really, really love beautiful shoes. But um, at a very early age, I figured out that you could do stuff which would empower you to achieve the goals you wanted through your own resources and capabilities. That came in very useful when my late father died. Um, and we had to take care, my brother and I had to take care of our family. We almost lost everything. And it was a brutal, brutal time in our lives. I was very fortunate. Um, I was a top student at my school. I was on a scholarship. And so I was very, always strong academically. But I always knew that entrepreneurship was the way that I would change my life for the better. Mm -hmm. And it landed up being the case because um, throughout my school career, I built companies. Um, when I left school, I got a scholarship to study in Canada. I was very, very fortunate. And I'd always had this, this journey with entrepreneurship where I saw that you could do so much to impact society, society positively and um, empower people around you. And 
that, that just played a huge role. So when I went back to South Africa, um, I was invited to be a trader at some of the top trading mm-hmm. firms in the world. In Switzerland, funny enough, that's where my love for, for, for trading and for Switzerland came from. Um, I realized that uh, I had I, I wanted to do good for South Africa. I wanted to help people who, you know, been in the same position as me. And so I went and taught finance, statistics, financial maths um, at two university students. They were the same age as me. And um, I was an entrepreneur at the same time. And it was awful seeing these people go through the education system. They were first generation university graduates and not being able to get jobs because that was South Africa at the time with this huge unemployment rate and it's only gotten worse. And I went to the chancellors of these universities I was teaching at and said, well, I can't in good conscience teach at this university unless we equip these people to be entrepreneurs. So I was insistent uh, that I wanted to teach entrepreneurs, entrepreneurship. I got my wish. And um, so I started equipping these people to build their own small businesses. And it was just this journey throughout where it was educate people with the right knowledge, the right skills, help be that voice where if people are from diverse backgrounds, minorities, women, whatever the case may be, be the person to step up, have a voice, empower these people, invest in these people, and level the playing field globally, which has been a theme of my life. And it's something I'm very proud of. Understood. You mentioned um, that it was quite tough at the beginning for you. How did you overcome um, this adversity? What was your main asset to overcome it? I think I'm a very resilient person and I was very, very lucky. Um, I was good at maths Mm -hmm. and that may have saved my life because I had mentors and teachers who could see that potential in me Mm -hmm. and they cultivated that potential. So um, one of the people that played a huge role in my life was my next door neighbor and she was the top student at Cambridge in physics and maths and her husband got a very big position in South Africa and they came and lived in South Africa. It was very strange that we landed up as next door neighbors. The whole thing was crazy because every single night um, I used to go over to their house and she used to just do maths with me. And so my home life was extremely bad. So instead of being in this very bad home life, I would go over, you know, to her, do maths every single night. Her husband was traveling. And so somebody who I could aspire to, I just sat at their kitchen table and we just practiced maths. And there were a series of these people who were really, really, really extraordinary, who helped mentor me, who helped coach me, who helped build that resilience. But I do a lot of work every single day, you know, to become more resilient. There's a lot of rejection in the world I, you you know, I deal with. There's extreme amounts of stress, um, being a venture capitalist, investing in startups. People think startups are glamorous especially, you know, when they're very well-funded startups or, you know, that people see them in the media and they think, wow, this is such an incredible story. They don't understand the stress involved. So I do Tony Robbins every single day. I meditate. Um, I do yoga. Um, I, I really, really, really work at building that resilience muscle. So, for example, Angela Duckworth, you know, that, that, that wrote the book Grit, she has this test in terms of you objectively measuring your grit levels. And I frequently take that test in terms of measuring, am I improving? Am I not improving? Are, are things getting the better of me? Because at times I have to step up in ways that I am completely out of my comfort zone. And you keep on practicing. You keep on growing. The mindfulness aspect plays a huge role in it. And I do fear-based exercise, fear-setting exercises where I write down all my fears and I look at what happens if 
I don't follow through in six months, a year, 12 months, three years, five years, and create that pain immediately. So if the thing is right and I should be doing it, I push myself to follow through because it's something that I'm passionate about. And the fear is something that's just not there. It's just the fear of following through. So I work very hard at it. But as I say, it's been a journey of self-discovery, often through a lot of mistakes and failures. Good, good. If I, if I read what you're telling me so far, it's mostly you have cultivated your, your frame of mind, your psychology, right? Absolutely. This is, uh, it looks like this is uh, your asset. It's the frame oh, of sh- mind which carries you forward and keep you going um, uh, independent of all the others you have to, um, to overcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I, I'm passionate about learning. And so trying to learn something once in order to apply it for life, it's easier said than done, but trying to do that and keep on, keep on growing. Like I have an obsession about growing and learning and um, learning from the best. Um, that plays a very ro- big role. I fully agree with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, now let's, let's like, um, ask you the following question about uh, the process difficulty of becoming an entrepreneur, Um, more so a serial entrepreneur. I'm speaking about the perceived difficulty against the actual difficulty. How was it? I think uh, youth is a good thing in the sense that often we don't know what we're getting ourselves involved in <laughs> and <laughs> you, you just go in, you know, head first and you don't think stuff through and you're like, I think this is a brilliant idea. Like, as I say, I read like a machine. And so when we built Excel voice force, which was one of the first voice analytics platforms in the world. So, you know, mm-hmm. like Alexa and that I, I was obsessed with creating something to solve a massive problem. And I just kept consuming more and more information and going to experts and trying and applying it. I had no idea how early we were doing it. I had no idea how, at the time, insane we may have looked. Um, looking back, um, I think we're incredibly lucky that we you know, achieved what we achieved. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, wow, I think I approach things very, very differently now in the sense that um, I, go, I, I do my best to go in with, Uh, my eyes wide open and apply objective standards to what I'm doing. So for example, if someone's coming to me and they want to do something with me, I go through an entire process as if I was presenting the opportunity to a venture capitalist. Mm -hmm. So I'm Mm -hmm. taking something to another VC and it's a mission, you know, like it's hard work to sit there with a pitch deck and saying, well, I'm doing this for myself. Mm -hmm. I know enough to know that I shouldn't have to put a pitch deck together for something for me to work on and to build. Mm -hmm. But having that objectivity and having that ability to say, okay, I'll present this to some VCs I'm friends with and get their feedback on it, um, that will give me greater chances of success. Um, that is, that is stuff I've learned through trial and error, but I agree with you in the sense that, um, perception versus reality. I came from South Africa where uh, entrepreneurship is not um, embraced Mm -hmm. in the way that's embraced here in the US. So the concept of failing is um, viewed in a very different light as it is here in the US. And so um, I was judged for a very, very long time that my DNA was one of an entrepreneur. As I mentioned to you when we were talking Mm -hmm. by email, um, 
I was obsessed with fitting in a box that people wanted me to fit in, not because I wanted to fit in that box, purely because I wanted the approval of my friends and family. And so I tried to be what they wanted me to be. I was always, you know, like the perfect everything to everybody. And Mm -hmm. so I wanted to be that person. And the idea that I could run an insurance company or, you know, I could be very, very successful in financial services because I was being, I had all these very big job offers on a consistent Mm -hmm. basis. And I tried really, really, really hard. And it just never worked because ultimately I need a certain amount of freedom of thought. I'm very creative in what I do. You know, like people like Picasso and that, you know, they play a very big role in my life in terms of how I build companies and how I think through stuff with the entrepreneurs. And so um, perception versus reality, as I say, a lot of it was very, very lonely, brutal. A lot of people saying you'll fail. Like when we came to the U.S., um, family members turned around and said, well, if you fail, you just come home and you can live in like this one bedroom apartment in South Africa and, you know, like just stop doing this nonsense. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, was, it was brutal. It was like no one believed in us. No one believed in what we were doing. Um, but again, because you knew you had no one to really turn to, you had friends net who, you know, are the same as you, you know, people such as yourself, who have aligned values, who are trying to change the world. You look to those people for inspiration and mm-hmm. for um a voice, you know, for you to keep going when you're going through your, your down times. But there were times where I had to dig very, very deep to keep on going. You mentioned uh, Picasso earlier. What is the similarity between Picasso and your way of, uh, of seeing entrepreneurship? It's, I'm a trained cellist. So um, when I, was, I started playing the cello when I was very, very young. Mm-hmm. Um, because m- my father was so involved in the arts globally, so extremely involved. My dad lived in Hollywood, Berlin, you know, all over the world involved in the theater and that world. And mm-hmm. so um, I I had the opportunity to, I was trained by the same teachers, Yo-Yo Ma and Jacqueline Dupre. And for people who don't know who those people are, they're two of the best cellists to live. And my teacher had friends, uh, you know, he had friendships with the best cellists in the world. And um I played the cello. I never knew how good I was. I never knew what everybody saw in my ability to play the cello, but it was a very creative process. But at the same time, it was a very disciplined process. Mm-hmm. So I would spend hours by myself every day practicing the cello. And it was, there was a dedication and people, people, my mom used to say, this will stand her in very, very good stead because she'll develop discipline. She'll des- develop things inside herself that, you know, other people will not possess. And um, I never realized, like, with my portfolio, I often have said to my fund partner, and it sounds very esoteric for a lot of people, but when things are in harmony in the portfolio, you know, I played in many orchestras, and you can hear that sense of harmony. But when there's disharmony, say, for example, there's a portfolio company, and they're going through a lot of difficulty. You as the conductor of this portfolio, that is what you are as a venture capital investor. You know, you you interact with individual players, but at the same time, you're interacting with the entire orchestra. You have to be so careful that disharmony in one company doesn't create disharmony, you know, because you're feeling pain. You're very worried. I'm a very empathetic person. Um, You know, like I don't start negativing other companies' beliefs and what they're trying to do. You know, keep them optimistic, even though, you know, certain of the companies are going through difficulty. Like, for example, with Corona, you have to remain positive. You have to remain, uh, you have to keep them focusing on their mission. 
that creative side of why did you start this company? What are you trying to achieve with this company? Yes, you're going to have a lot of difficulty. But artists, Picasso went through extreme amounts of difficulty for a very long time, you know, in his life before he achieved that world fame that everybody remembers him by. There was a growth process that had to take place. He had to grow into becoming the world's best artist. And a lot of these companies, people don't realize how messy they actually are and how much creativity they actually uh, take out of the entrepreneurs to create these companies that you look at and you're like, wow, you know, that's Uber today, or, you know, like that's this company or this company. But it was a process to get to that point. It's like often I think of Michelangelo and, you know, carving a sculpture. And that is what you're doing to these companies. You're carving and carving and carving until you have something that looks extraordinary, but that took a lifetime to create. Yeah, I understand. And what is the, the biggest challenge? Um, that you face um, at the start of your career? Internal fear. I believe um, we all have fears inside of ourselves that we're not enough, we're not good enough, we won't succeed. And um, overcoming those limiting beliefs and actively looking super deep inside of ourselves Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and say, like, wow, that's not, I can't blame anyone else. I'm self-sabotaging and that is what I'm doing. And I have to take responsibility for uh, not accomplishing this thing, even though I want to accomplish this thing. The only person that can ultimately get me to accomplish this thing is me. I have to do the personal work. I have to grow. That's Mm -hmm. painful because it's much easier to blame other people, your family, your friends, you know, your community, where you're born. It's so much easier. But to actually take responsibility and look in the mirror and say, I am not succeeding at the scale I want to succeed at. And that's me. That's hard. And it's very funny you mentioned fear. And uh, speaking about fear, what it is more paralyzing in your eyes, the fear of failure or the fear of success? (laughs) That's a good question. (laughs) Um, It's a really good question. I think the fear, it used to be the fear of failure. Like, Mm -hmm. as I say, I came from extremely difficult circumstances. And I think um, that was always part of me. I can never forget um, lying on the floor of my father's pharmacy, you know, like, and it was, we were in a very, um, you know, in the central business district and the shop was cold and, you know, it was nighttime and it was becoming very dangerous, you know, Mm -hmm. like a lot of, um, Bad people were starting to infiltrate, you know, that area. Once upon a time, it was a good neighborhood. But sleeping on the floor of my father's shop, because my father passed away, and feeling as if the world was spinning out of control, because that's how it felt, and thinking, well, this is what life's going to look like for the rest of our lives. If, you know, if I don't just figure out a plan, um, you know, to to step up. Um, That pain is embedded in me to this day. And I think it's, it's a good thing in the sense that some people are driven by um, passion and, and, you know, and pa- greatness, and some people are driven by pain. And my fun partner helped build Salesforce and Success Factors, and you know, he was one of the early employees in both companies. And he always says to me, like, you like, he talks about people like Mark Benioff and Lars Delgado and how some people are driven by pain and it makes mm-hmm. us better. And some people are just driven by, oh, my God, this is so much fun. You know, like, I just can't get enough of this. Um, I think it, it creates a level of empathy in me. I think that's a big part of it in the sense that when I give entrepreneurs advice 
or whatever it may be, I take it very, very seriously because I have the ability to put myself in their shoes and I know the kind of fear they're experiencing at that point in time. I don't think I'm afraid of success. I think I had to change my view of success. Um, in South Africa, there were very few billionaires, like, you know, and if those billionaires were there, they were not, um, you couldn't really get to them, if that makes any sense. They were very like, you know, like in an ivory tower net. It mm -hmm. was just like, you know, it was like the diamond, diamond billionaire families and those kinds of people. Um, my view of success has changed in the sense that in the U.S. there are many, many, many people who are like us. Um, mm -hmm. I deal with people on a daily basis who sell their companies for anything from $50 million for a couple of years worth, you know, like to Google or something that happens on a consistent basis to billions of dollars and they're just normal people you've never even heard of them but you know they are, are extraordinary entrepreneurs and so i think i've had to learn to say it's okay uh, to be ambitious it's okay to be proud of my ambition not be ashamed of it um and to go all the way because i'm trying to affect change on a global scale and that means um leading by example and showing entrepreneurs you're not a freak you're not weird there's nothing wrong with you if you are you know, in an environment where people are saying, you have to be a certain way, you have to be something. I'm saying, well, be brave. Don't fear success. But again, it's been a personal growth journey and I do a lot of work to, to embrace that level of success. What is your, um, your recipe to overcome this uh, mental fear? Because everything evolves about uh, uh, thoughts. So, Fear really comes from a certain way of thinking. What is your recipe to overcome that? I read this, like, voraciously. Uh, like, I, I, I have different categories, you know, of books I read. And a lot of the people I know um, here in Silicon Valley, they like to read certain categories of books and stick to those categories. Mm -hmm. And um, I found that doesn't work for me because um, I become too, I feel like I'm walking on one leg instead of being more balanced, you know? So um, I, I, look, um, I look to learn from people who've lived before and, and seen that they've gone through a lot of the same stuff we're going through. Like often you sit there thinking, well, I'm going through these difficulties. I'm the only person in the world that's going through this. I'm trying to do this and it's so hard. But if you look back in history, there's some pretty extraordinary people who have done a lot more than someone like me will probably ever do. And so um, learning from those lessons and And, and cultivating that love um, of learning. I, something as silly as a dream board, which I know for a long time I thought was crazy. But then I was like, you know what? Um, mm -hmm. I read 50 Cent's book and I, I, I'm always following what he's doing because he's had a very difficult but interesting life and he's made the most of it. And I think he's, he can be a role model for a lot of people because he keeps finding ways to reinvent himself. And I decided, you know what? I'm going to do a dream board. Like I've never done something like this before. And you talk about Picasso and all these different people from all these walks of life that inspire me that by, by society standards, it's like often you've been told um, specialized. You can't be a generalist. You have to be hyper specialized. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, you know, these people make me into who I am. I'm a polymath. I'm at an age in my life where I'm accepting who I am. I have a lot of interests in those things, but at the same time, I work very, very, very hard to keep growing. Um, I flag it now when I can feel like I'm getting frustrated. You know, I've done that amount of personal work where I'm like, oh, I'm frustrated. Okay, um, I'm getting angry or upset. 
um, what is going on, what am I not dealing with, what am I hiding from, and then training myself to wake up in the morning and do Tony Robbins, which I do every day, and meditate and go deeper in terms of meditation and then attack the thing that I'm not doing which is so hard and so painful. And we all know what that thing is and sitting there and saying, okay, however painful this is, um, let me deal with this now and I will feel better. And often the fear you're dealing with that you're not, that you're not actually doing that thing is to do with rejection, to do with, you know, feelings of failure. Often it's just irrational, but the feeling that will come out of doing it, you'll feel supremely good about yourself. And that will help give you the momentum to keep growing. And you've just got to keep training that muscle. You, you you spoke about books, and uh, there is something which I'm very much impressed about. You said you read a lot of books in a very short time span. How do you do that? Originally, it started because I'm an insomniac, a proper insomniac. And so for a very <laughs> long time, I, I grew up and I was super ashamed. You know, like I went through a lot of trauma. And for a long time, I would not tell anyone. So I'd lie in bed and, you know, I was freaking out. And I was like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? You know, a lot of people mm -hmm. go through that mm -hmm. stuff. And I was like... This is just like, it got to a point where it's like, this is unhealthy because I'm just getting myself more and more worked up. So I decided, I, I started reading audible books probably 15 years ago or something. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm going to start listening to audible books. And so I started listening to audible books and I was like, this is healthy. And then I got more and more into it, you know, listening in the middle of the night. And I was like, okay, let me increase the speed and increase the speed and increase the speed because I love to apply this stuff in real life. So I was like, okay, learn, apply, learn, apply, learn, apply, learn, mm -hmm. apply. And you learn very quickly what works and what doesn't work. And you start making these um, notes in your brain in terms of these different things that happen in these books. And it got to a point where um, I'm a huge fan of Tim Ferriss. And he was talking um, about, you know, Jack Canfield read 3,000 books and he wants to read 3,000 books. And then Nassim Nicholas Taleb is, uh, you know, like a hero to me. And so Nassim Nicholas Taleb said he wrote, read 50 books a month. And I was like, okay, I had this obsession. I wanted to be really smart. I never defined what really smart meant. You know, that was the ridiculous thing about it. But I went about saying, I'm going to be really smart. I'm going to read 50 books a month. And I wrote everything down, you know, in terms of how, what books I was going to read. I tracked everything and I started just getting more and more into it. And so all the time that we all waste that we're not aware of, I have an armband on my arm with my, my uh, iPod on it. And so, for example, I go to the bathroom, okay? So that would be time I could listen to Audible. Um, I go to the supermarket. From the moment I left whatever I was doing, I put my earphones on, I go to the supermarket the entire time I'd be listening, making mental notes about what I was learning. And it became a form of healthy addiction. And so I got more and more and more into it. And because I was seeing the positive effects of what I was doing, I just leaned into it more and more. And now, and then I read about people like Bill Gates, where how Bill Gates reads and the number of pages he reads per hour and his retention rate and all these things got me more into it. And so a lot of the books I read 15 years ago, I've seen investments three, four weeks ago where I was like, wow, I read about something like that 15 years ago. I never knew that learning that so long ago would actually affect an investment I'm looking to make now positively. So for me, it was a form of salvation, uh, a form of growth that I now can't live without it because it's, it gives me so much joy. I would encourage anyone to do it because um, it's just so empowering. Like the idea of traditional education, I think we've all got into a stage where it only does so much for you, even when you go to the best universities. And that idea that you keep 
filling your brain with information and applying it. I think the key is that you apply it so that you can see that sense of growth coming from it. That's critical. Making notes because you just keep increasing that retention. It's like building a muscle again. But I would anyone listening, if they want to do one thing for themselves, train yourself. It's easy to do. It's, It's nothing special for me, but it changed my life. And your advice will be to go or lean toward audiobook rather than a hard copy book? Not necessarily. Like mm. originally, um, I think I've taken so many tests because I'm so into self-improvement. You know, like you get all these online tests from these books and you know, like, oh, do you learn by listening? Do you learn by yeah. visuals? You know, like all those things. And for a time, like I'd taken all those tests and I realized that I'm very good at learning by listening. And again, I was training myself to become stronger and stronger because I was learning by listening. Now um, I do both. So, for example, I have a, a PDF converter on my iPad, and so and it reads to me. So, I like the idea that if it's very, very um, difficult stuff. So, I went to, I did a program at Harvard last year, and it was a very, very, very hardcore investing program. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it had the most, mo- the best investors in the world teaching us. You know, like people like Bob Rubin, Larry Summers, and so they gave us thousands of pages to prepare for it. And, you know, all my classmates were like the best investors in the world. And it was very intimidating. I can say that. And I looked at this pile of stuff, you know, they just kept sending and sending it. I was like, how am I going to get through this? So I went and I leveraged what I knew about myself. And I'm like, well, if I see it visually and I hear it and I make notes, I'll increase my retention. So I got this and there were thousands of graphs and thousands of charts and all these things. And I was going through this and I chose a speed that worked for me that it was reading to me at. And I literally, that is how I got through a huge amount of information. Um, and at the same time, remember that information and have con- continually applied that information because I knew um, how I would learn best for myself. But by no means would I just say use audio because there's so much value to PDF, to Kindle, you know, where you can highlight your notes and then you can export, you know, all your highlighted notes. And that's a summary of what you've learned that you can refer to, which is great if you try and keep applying that knowledge. So for sure, you need to test what works best for you. And talking about learning, um, do you think it's, it might be better to, um, for the persons to understand to what kind of, um, uh, uh, of intelligence they pertain? Uh, what are the, in, uh, the win, intelligent window? Because you have, um, have, there is two professors who has made an interesting... Uh, Um, not survey, but uh, experiment. And they discovered that uh, people mainly, there is nine type of intelligence. And if you don't talk to this person, to his uh, intelligence, intelligent window, it, uh, this window never opens and he cannot uh, assimilate or understand what uh, is being taught. So don't you think Absolutely. we start from this? We can, uh, you are a, a person which, is, uh, which learns by listening. The other one, you are a visual person. The other one, you are a, a mathematical mind. Uh, the other one, you need to, to find a purpose in, in what you're doing. Uh, it, will it not be easier to put people in their own category and then uh, let them learn in an easier way and maybe a, a, a more natural and more fun way? Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I think if the world adhered to what you just described, it would be a better world for all of us because we'd all be focusing on our strengths and our passions and building on those things mm-hmm. versus constantly um, forcing ourselves to, to fit into um, 
something, you know, like a frame that was created long before, you know, we even were there for it. And um, I couldn't agree with you more. Like I've seen so many people suffer. I feel, as I said, um, I was an educator. Um, I, it's something I'm very, mm-hmm. very passionate about. And how often I see people forcing themselves to do something that it's not natural for them. They try their best, but when you're working against what is natural for you, you're, you're going to deliver subpar results, not because you're trying to, just because mm-hmm. that's the way it is. And um, empowering people to actually perform at their best because they're starting from a foundation of strength I couldn't agree with you more. Mm-hmm. Highly, highly, highly recommend it. If people can have those honest conversations with themselves, if they, you know, they're grown up in that and they're like, you know what, this is who I am. This works for me. Um, so, for example, a big thing in Silicon Valley is a Venn diagram. And, you know, you have these circles and you basically, I'm sure a lot of your uh, listeners can just Google it. You know, like Mark Andreessen, Peter Till, a lot of these people encourage people to do this exercise where you look at your two or three key strengths. And look at them honestly. Say, what is what is unique about me? What am I really good at? What am I passionate about? And put those three things on the diagram. And when you actually see those three or four things, whatever it may be, mm-hmm. and you look at it and say, okay, this is what makes me me. Now, how do I leverage that to be an entrepreneur, to, to be an artist, to be whatever it is you want to be? But you're starting from a foundation of honesty, which enables you to, to work to your strengths. That That is is a foundation for success. Mm. I agree. Uh, tell me, Alicia, you're a woman um, which are doing and managing different things at the same time. And I'd like to know, how do you manage, first of all, your creativity, second, your entrepreneurial uh, mind, and how do you choose your next project? Okay, so when I was in South Africa, uh, let's talk about creativity, entrepreneurial mind, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. growth, I think, because yes. that's answering your question. Um, when we were in South Africa, we had one of the top digital media agencies. So, for example, um, we were using data before anyone else was using data, mm-hmm. you know, like analyzing data and telling our clients, well, this is what the data actually says. Um, this is how we, we advise you to do your marketing and those things. You know, like we were doing mm-hmm. A-B testing, all that stuff long before anyone was doing it. I think people thought we were crazy, but we had open-minded clients. They were multinational clients and they gave us those opportunities. And so for me, the idea that I was using my analytical abilities in a creative way, because we had the trust of the clients, you know, to apply that, um, that was very inspiring because it was like emerging of the two sides, uh, you know, those two interests, the creativity and the analytical. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things we ended up doing we had um, the South African government was um, a client of ours and um, we were building a platform for them which was Etsy or was that foundations of Etsy before Etsy and um, it was really really beautiful so uh, crafters artists designers you name it they could put their own little shop on on this platform and they could exhibit to the world and the South African government got us to do it um, on spec and they never paid us any money and Usually what happens with agency environments like this, it just, you know, falls to the wayside. And I fell in love with this platform. Genuinely, just, I was like, I was obsessed with it. I thought it's too beautiful. We need a, it was very simplistic when this whole thing started. And the more research I did, the more I was like, well, there's something more to this. You know, it's like the rise of Afrofusion, you know, like you could start seeing on the Parisian catwalks, you know, all these types of things, Christian Louboutin and that, they were starting to get more into this 
Afrofusion thing. And I was like, well, if we get the right partners, talk, spoke to people from Sotheby's, you know, all the right people, let's get this platform out there. Well, then the problem was we had to have artists and designers and this was, and so we went online and we found all these free online classified sites. And, you know, this was really early days and po po posted, um, uh, are you an artist? Are you looking to be discovered by a global audience? We've, you know, like we're building this thing. We've got partnerships overseas. Come and meet with us. And every Monday morning, these artists would arrive and um, they'd show us their work. And these people, a lot of the stuff we saw was absolutely breathtakingly magnificent. And um, I fell in love with these artists. I couldn't but, you know, fall in love with their journeys, their stories, you know, like they're little businesses. These people are little entrepreneurs trying to build these businesses and they need support. And um, we got more and more and more into this platform. And I landed up funding my poor husband. We landed up funding thousands of artists and collecting more and more and more art. We've got a container in South Africa full of art. And it was like, if I died tomorrow, it was one of the most important things I ever did in my life. Mm -hmm. And it's weird when you say creativity and entrepreneurship, because we took the funding from our for-profit business and we were enabling non-profit entrepreneurs, basically, you know, like social entrepreneurs and those things to mm -hmm. actually have a, a voice. So we had Roche Pharmaceuticals and, you know, very, very big companies. Mm -hmm. And so for the one year, our clients, we had like a, a large group of people from Roche that worked with us in that, and they were very, very good to us. I said, I want to show our, our appreciation for all the work they give us and all the opportunities they give us. And so I went to one of these artists, Kachiso, and I was like, well, I need you to, we need to create something. And so we printed, like it was magnificent prints and we framed it and, you know, each one was signed at the back and numbered in those things. And we put these big ribbons on these, on these things. And each one of these clients got these things and they were blown away, absolutely blown away that this could be done for them. And they landed up supporting these artists. And today, um, it's never left me. You know, what we did, it was so important and it's still part of me. And even today, I keep saying to my husband, I want to fund more artists. You know, mm -hmm. like it's just something that's so part of me. Every day, like we haven't got our, our video, I put different pictures behind me on the screen, behind, you know, on the wall here. And yeah. people say to me, like, I want to know what picture you have up today. I want to know, I have a moving exhibition, but I'm giving artists visibility and a voice and it's something deeply inspiring for me. So that's creativity and entrepreneurship where I thought out the box and tried to empower other people because it was something I was deeply passionate about and I found the time mm -hmm. for it and I would continue to find the time for it because it's something I'm so passionate about. Um, with regard to next project, well, there's a very interesting article out there and it's, it's kind of provocative, but it's by Derek Sivers and it's all about don't be a donkey. And I, I, I encourage everyone to read it. Like just go and look up Derek Sivers, don't be a donkey article. And it's about the concept of a donkey standing there and donkey's got hay and a donkey's got water and the donkey can't decide does he want the hay or the water, hay or water, hay or water. And in the end, the donkey lands up dying of thirst and hunger. Because the donkey doesn't figure out, okay, I should probably drink the water and then I can have the hay and come back to the water. And it's a metaphor for life where we have to hyper-focus on what we're doing at the time to, you know, like to get that thing to full fruition and then we can go on to something else. And as an entrepreneur, I'm always, my brain is filled with ideas. I'm surrounded by people with, you know, that are filled with ideas. Mm -hmm. And it's been a growth journey because I was one of those people. I wanted to do all these incredible things at the same time. But I, I, I've come to realize now to have the greatest impact, to help the most people, I have to at times focus and say, okay, this feels uncomfortable, but I'm going to be better for this. For this period of time, I will do nothing else 
but this thing. And then if this other thing is meaningful enough, if it's important enough, if I can look ahead to 80 and I can say, well, what are the most important things I want to accomplish in my life? What will I regret if I don't do those things? Then I can come back and say, okay, this is important. I need to focus on this next because it's part of my life journey. And so that's how I've learned to choose it. I've learned to be a lot more pragmatic about it. Um, I've had to learn to say no a lot. I never used to learn to say no, you know, like I, I loved saying yes to everything and supporting people. But again, it just got to a point where um, the more I say no, the more the world opens up to what I should be doing and the people I should be helping. And um, that creates a more interesting life, but it's, it's hard. Again, a lot of this is about growth and maturity and um, knowing what you're trying to ultimately achieve and how you want to live your life. Nice, nice. Now, uh, something more personal. Tell me, how do you train yourself to improve not only the entrepreneur, but the woman? There's so much in society that we don't talk about, you know, when it comes to women. And um, I hope that um, through my own journey, um, starting to be more honest about, mm -hmm. you know, the struggles and difficulties I've experienced, I kept them quiet for a very, very long time. And um, I don't think that was right because so many women struggle, you know, in their day-to-day -day lives, whether in the career environment, whether, you know, building companies, whatever it is, um, a lot of women suffer in silence. And um, I think I have a responsibility now to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. So um, women, we undervalue ourselves hugely. Um, it's not a good thing. Having those honest conversations with yourself. So I learned to buy a ton of books, you know, on uncomfortable things, you know, like um, all these things that you don't want to deal with, like negotiating, you know, as a woman. And um, are you being paid what you rightfully deserve? And having those conversations with, you know, your bosses or your partners or whatever it is. Um, you as a woman, you inherently know what you want, but cultivating that voice to actually say, this is what I want. I want you to take me seriously. And being okay with that chaos may ensue. I've had that happen to me where um, I have investors, you know, like very high profile investors. Mm -hmm. And the investors will come to me and they say like, Alicia, you know, you've built this trust with us. We trust you. You know, like we're empowering you with this money. You need to go and do X, Y, and Z. And these investors have not been unfair. You know, like they've been very fair in terms of what they're asking for. And then you'll go to entrepreneurs or whatever it may be, and the entrepreneurs will respond very negatively because they've seen you in this one light, and now they've seen you in this other light, and you're trying to grow and earn more trust. And, you know, as someone taking other people's money, there's a big trust element to it. It's a big responsibility. And so there's a lot of pushback, and these people don't understand why is she being like this, why is she being like this, and having that conversation where it's like, I'm empowering you. But now I'm trying to also empower myself to take a more responsibility to grow in my own journey. I need you to, to, to support me on this. I need you to value me on this. And I need to show you, and you need to do this by means of a contract. Often this comes down to an agreement. And you see the chaos that ensues because women are perceived to be helpful and sweet and kind and generous. And then uh, you get people start thinking that you that, you know, like people start thinking that you horrible words <laughs> as a woman, all those things. And learning to be like, I don't have to be um, mean to other people in order to have my voice heard, but it is important for myself, for my family, for everyone around me. People want you to be happy, but you have to empower yourself. And um, 
with regard to the stuff that no one talks about, like in Silicon Valley, yes, um, there's a fortune of chauvinism, yes. Um, there's serious, serious problems. It's conversations like this that I think change the status quo. People such as yourself who are leaders who are looking and saying, well, Switzerland is diversity friendly. You know, we, we, we look at these types of things. We're very interested in these types of things and having those conversations where you're like, okay, you Silicon Valley, you need to look at the stuff. Often people don't listen, but continuing to, to do that work, even when you just feel like you're falling down, it's a hard, hard journey and supporting other women when you see them suffering. Um, and they often don't talk about how they're suffering, but they are suffering. Uh, it takes a lot of resilience to keep on fighting through and saying, you know, we will, we will change things. But it's a journey. Like people like uh, Melinda Gates saying that it's going to take decades, you know, to create equality. Um, when Melinda Gates is saying that it makes a very, you know, like <laughs> that's reality. But continuing to be brave, continuing to um, do the work and continuing to fill, fill your mind with positive thoughts and knowing you're going to go into environments where you are going to be mistreated, where you are going to be discounted, uh, where you may be the most researched person in the room, but you'll look, you'll sit there and people just write you off and continuing to go, even though that is reality. That takes work, as you say, daily training, daily feeding your brain with positive thoughts. But it's not easy. There are a lot of tears very, very, very often. Don't doubt it for one second. Tell me now, Alicia, you're a very confident um, woman. Where did you find your self-confidence? Through personal work, through digging deep and looking inside myself and daily work, um, every single day getting up and saying, um, what can I do today to be better, to improve, to grow, to uh, climb out of my own way? Um, to, to say, well, I want to be the best that I can be. Mm -hmm. How do I do that? And measuring what I do. I think the measurement part is super, super, super important. So putting objective goals. So I run these rewards challenges for myself. Mm -hmm. And so I know something will be super difficult for me. And I know that it's important that I accomplish that thing. And so I'll say to myself, okay, let me think of something that inspires me. Mostly it's about a book. So um, there's uh, Jeff Koons, you know, the artist. Um, I'm yeah. very into his work. So I, I looked at Jeff. I, I, I saw his work at the Broad recently in LA before Corona. And I was deeply inspired by his work. So I, I, there was a series of things I had to accomplish over the next few months. And they're challenging, very, very challenging. So I thought very hard and I was like, okay, the book costs a bit of money. You've got to buy the book and all those things, sure. But the reward of actually writing down, this is my goal. This is how I'm going to break it down into these mini steps. And every single day I'm going to mark off this tiny thing I've done to accomplish this goal. And I'll give myself this period of time to achieve it. And my husband is like a supporter in this whole thing. So having that peer-to-peer -peer mentoring where I show him what I'm trying to achieve, he's party to the whole thing. And then he's kind of like my, you know, my backstop in terms of if I weigh and I'm like, okay, just, just make sure I stay on track as well, because this is difficult for me. And mm -hmm. building that muscle, I've probably taken 50 rewards challenges at this point in time in my life. And doing that and getting to the end of it and marking off and saying like, Dan, well done, Alicia, you did it. <laughs> and like, you know, like it, it's so silly, 
but it's something that's so meaningful and it got me through what was something that was very, very difficult. And Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. me, it's, you know, it's like coffee table books. I just love them. But for other people, it could be anything, you know, like it could be the simplest of things. If that thing inspires you to build your confidence and your self-belief and to get you to go through things that are difficult for you, but to just keep following through because that, that little tiny reward means so much to you, it's amazing what you can accomplish. All right. All right. Um, Alicia, when we were preparing this um, episode, uh, you told me that you wanted to be the Oprah of your generation. Please elaborate about that. Oprah has been a, a, a huge role model to me. You know, like she's been very involved in, you know, South Africa. She's got a school. Um, one of the young women I mentored, I ended up getting a scholarship to go to her school. Mm-hmm. And it was just an you know, incredibly inspiring journey in that. And um, I feel like She's the living, breathing embodiment of the American uh, success story that we can mm-hmm. all apply in our lives in the sense that she didn't come from um, this privileged background. You know, like she just leaned into something and kept growing and expanding and mm-hmm. sharing. Mm-hmm. And um, she was often very different to everyone around her, but that didn't stop her. As she said, she had a loud voice, a loud personality. She was a giver. You know, she's just a very an incredibly warm, like a light in people's lives. And she never, she never stopped that light from shining, even though many people would have liked for her, you know, to, 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 you know, make herself smaller in that, to make themselves feel more mm-hmm. comfortable. And she just kept growing in that. And she's an incredible entrepreneur and philanthropist and all these incredible things. But, um, I aspire to be like someone like that, where, um, you can have a positive effect globally by living your truth and by sharing what you have, um, created with other people. I believe it's win-win rather than this very um, slanted view that, you know, like there's a small group of people, you know, that benefit in a massive way. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like if anyone else wants to benefit, then it gets called socialism. You know, you hear a lot of that lately. And so um, for me, I, I see myself as somebody who's younger than her, but that feels very lucky and grateful for all the opportunities I've been given. And I believe that I can share that success with other people around the world who can identify with my journey and the trials and tribulations of that journey. And we can succeed together because ultimately that's, that's what we all offer. We all offer success, a better quality of life, looking after our friends and families and communities. And I don't believe that has to be reserved for an elite few. So um, I, I hope I accomplish even a small amount in comparison to what she's done, but she's affected change at a global scale. And that's what I am trying my very best to do. Nice, nice, nice philosophy. Nice, uh, let's say, modest uh, operandi to follow. Now, uh, I have a question that I, I love very much. So I would like to know what it is like to be you, Alicia. It's challenging. It's, um, I think I'm my hardest critic and I, I'm learning not to be. So um, I'm learning to be kinder to myself. And, you know, it's at times hard. You're in Silicon Valley and mm-hmm. you are surrounded by some of the most extraordinary people on earth. And um, that can be brutal at times because a lot of the people around me are extremely brilliant. You know, the kind of brilliance that I wasn't necessarily exposed to in South Africa when I was growing up. And um, you at times feel like, you, you know, you have feelings of unworthiness. You have feelings, you know, like all these normal human feelings and focusing on growth versus um, I'm not worthy. 
I think that's a really important thing where it's like, what did I learn today? What did I do today to grow? Focusing on that versus, oh, I'm going to compare myself to X, Y, and Z. And if I tell you some of the comparisons that have been made, like you'd laugh your head off. Like, you know, like there's an absurdity to it. Like it's really ha-ha funny because um, I'm not Elon Musk. Like ha-ha, I'm not Elon Musk. You know, like we both came from South Africa and he's absolutely amazing. But I, I can aspire to be like Elon Musk, but at times it can be very destructive. You know, like when you're constantly being compared to, say, for example, a fund manager who's got multiple funds, they've got $16 billion under management and you, this young uh, VC, you know, trying to do good, you know, and create um, returns for your investors and those things. And you're trying to find your way and there's a lot of mistakes. And so remaining centered and remaining um, focused on your goal, um, that's, that's a process every single day. And then again, like just trying to be the very best you can be saying, well, what do I want for this life? Who inspires me? Who are people who live true lives? Like my cello teacher, I went back, um, he was 94 years old and he was at this old age home in South Africa and he was sitting in the sun. And um, I was then going to play cello again after many years of saying, I don't want to be, a, you know, this world-class famous cellist which everyone wanted me to be. And he was sitting composing at 94. And it was like a picture that will remain with me for the rest of my life because he found his purpose. And, you know, like he was composing, he was sitting in the sun. It was the most magnificent picture. He died two weeks later. And for me, that's a life well lived. And often people say to me, when it comes to coaching entrepreneurs, I don't just coach them on their short-term benefits. It's like, I want them to create a legacy for themselves where they've created something of meaning, of value, of significance to the world, where they can look back and say, that was a life well lived versus, oh, I bought myself a Ferrari. Oh, I bought myself a yacht. Oh, I did, you know, I did these very short-term things, but I didn't feel mm. fulfilled. So I think always focusing on the bigger picture, the bigger purpose, um, that's critical, but it's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> it yeah. takes a lot of daily work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But eventually, what uh, takes time to be built, time will respect it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. It's not from me, and I assure you. I think it was uh, one of the French sculptures. I'm not, not quite sure, but I thought it was Rodin who said that. When he was well, in one of his, of, of his sculpture. I love the fact that you mentioned that, because it's so important to think about these things. Mm-hmm. Now tell me, um, is there a topic you would like to share with the audience? Uh, something that is close to your heart and that we haven't touched so far? I think the idea of um, living healthily. Mm -hmm. So um, aside from like the mindfulness and those things, but the idea that um, we, we practice healthy living through the food we eat, through the um, exercise we do. You know, I come to Switzerland every December And, um, you know, it's, it's the highlight of my year. And I've learned so much from the experience. Like I remember, I don't even know how I found my way there, but I landed <laughs> up at the top of a mountain in Kitzbühel. And it was one of a magical, magical experience because everyone had been skiing the whole day mm -hmm. and it was this yoga retreat. And I learned so much about, um, Swiss people's view of health because they used to open these huge glass doors. And, you know, it was freezing, absolutely freezing at yeah. five o'clock, six o'clock at night. And this fresh air used to come shooting into the room, bursting into the room. And it was this huge yoga studio. And it was just magnificent. You saw the sun coming down, snow in the mountains. Mm -hmm. And I, I learned um, how Swiss people live and the importance of health, the importance of 
aging gracefully, the importance of taking care of yourself in that. And I think when I see the entrepreneurs, I choose entrepreneurs that are passionate about their health, their well-being, you know, exercise and those things. But I think often there's this mindset that you've got to give everything to what you're doing, you know, like just burn mm-hmm. yourself out in it. And I don't think that's healthy. I don't think it's sustainable for the long term. And people such as yourself who are so passionate about creating positive, healthy change in our lives. I think these are things I'd love to talk to you about because, as I say, Switzerland holds a very special place in my heart when it comes to all about health. (laughs) Good Good to hear that. Uh, uh, Tell me, uh, is there a question that I did not ask and you have loved, I ask you? So I think, um, yes, this is a little secret I have. The question is, what is is an unusual habit or absurd thing that you love? And I'll I'll answer it for you. And I think maybe your your community can take something out of it. I drink Swiss hot chocolate every (laughs) single morning of my life. I have a huge cup, like a huge cup, and it's covered in foam and it's covered in chocolate. And it's like the best, it's best chocolate money can buy because it's like so pure. (laughs) <laughs> and my face is usually covered in chocolate, you know, and foam and all those things. And my husband makes it for me every day of my life. And I laugh my head off because, you know, there's an absurdity th- to it. But it gives me more joy than you can possibly ever imagine. And, it's, you know, it, it creates this lightness in our lives. And I couldn't imagine my life without it. And I think to everyone listening, find that unusual thing or that absurd thing that you do every single day that you love more than anything. And it's a complete indulgence and that just, it just gives you joy and satisfaction. Find that thing and never, ever, ever give up on that thing because you have no idea how cool it is just to have that thing and it's your thing. That's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you very much about that. Alicia, um, I love to speak to individuals that show people that it is possible to follow one's heart. And for this reason, I am very grateful that you accepted the invitation to talk about uh, your journey. So thank you very much for coming as it was really a special moment to have you on the show. I wish you all the very best to you and all your endeavor. Thank you very, very much for hosting me. Um, I feel very honored and privileged to have joined you. And I hope post-corona, I get to come to Switzerland and we get to, to, to meet up in person. That would yeah, be really cool. Yeah, yeah, it will be very interesting. Thank you very much indeed again. Bye-bye now. Thank you. Bye.